Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. With most of us stuck at home, whether due to lockdowns or border closures, some of us have returned to the idea of travel writing, nonfiction that charts someone's journey to a different land, a different people, and a different culture. Once a mainstay of bookstores in the 80s, travel writing has fallen behind a bit, both commercially and academically, as scholars critique some of the assumptions and perspectives that drove much of that writing. Tim Hannigan, author of The Travel Writing Tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre, tackles these questions head-on. In a series of interviews with some of the most famous and illustrious travel writers over the past few decades, Tim digs into these debates and and hears from the writers themselves what drove them to write about what they saw and experienced. Tim Hannigan is a writer and academic and the author of several narrative history books, including A Brief History of Indonesia and the award-winning Raffles and the British Invasion of Java. He holds a PhD from the University of Leicester. Today, Tim and I will talk about what it means to be a travel writer and why he decided to interview so many of the most prominent travel writers around today. We'll talk about some of the debates that emerge on the subject and what travel writing means in the age of COVID. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review Books podcast. Perhaps let's start with what does it mean for a book to be an example of quote-unquote travel writing? And what, in your view, does it mean to be a travel writer? Um, thanks, Nicholas. That's uh, that's an interesting question, and I think it's actually two quite separate, quite distinct um, questions there. In terms of what's travel writing, if you're somebody who works on travel writing as an academic or if you're somebody who works in travel writing as a, as a writer, and I'm kind of both – uh, if you meet people who aren't really familiar with travel, uh, book-length travel writing, you tend to 
get an assumption that what you're talking about is commercial travel writing or travel journalism or guidebook writing. So if you say to people, I'm working on a PhD about travel writing, they say, oh, what, Lonely Planet guidebooks? Or if you say, I've been interviewing travel writers, they say, what do you mean journalists who work for magazines? But the travel writing I'm looking at that I'm interested in that the book is about um, is, is book form narrative travel writing. And that's what academics have mainly looked at. And there's there's been an awful lot of scholarly wrangling over trying to pin down what exactly what exactly it is. And generally speaking, um, scholars make a point of saying, well, you know, travel writing is very, very broad, very diverse, very amorphous, really, and, and hard to pin down. But I think at base, what it is, is quite clear. Uh, it's it's non-fiction writing, certainly received by readers as as non-fiction, understood to be non-fiction, almost always delivered in the first person, so first person narrative of some kind of journey or interaction with place that is not the author's original point of departure. Um, I think I think it's you need to put that little caveat in there because you get an awful lot of books that are certainly sold as travel writing where the author doesn't really travel anywhere. They go to live in another place. They go to live in Provence or Tuscany or Delhi or wherever it might be, or Bali. Um, they're not really, they're not really traveling on a big long journey, but they have traveled to that place. So it's, it's a journey or an interaction with a place that's in some sense foreign um, to the author. So that's what I think travel writing at base Bases. We could talk about a much wider writing of travel that would include all the journalism stuff, the guidebooks. It would also include perhaps fiction that has travel themes. But but travel writing is is that nonfiction narrative form. When it comes to what's a travel writer, that's an interesting one. Um, and I think I'd much more readily actually throw in the guidebook writers and the journalists into that bracket. But when it comes to the writing of books. I think, and this was a parameter I set for myself, I, I wanted somebody with some kind of commitment to that uh, that genre, if you like. Um, so having written a travel book was not enough to qualify as a travel writer because there are an awful lot of people in the, in the sort of breadth of a long writing career who have done one travel book. I mean, we don't really think of Salman Rushdie as a travel writer, but he did one travel book or has done so far one travel book the jaguar smile um but i wouldn't count him as a travel writer he's a novelist so for me it's somebody who has done more than one book in that in that genre i i wanted people with at least two and preferably more uh to suggest that being a travel writer was somehow central to their writerly writerly practice and writerly identity so could you walk us through the history of travel writing including some of its most famous examples Travel writing is, um, well, it's arguably in its kind of antecedent forms, just about the oldest, the oldest genre there is. Certainly, certainly it's much older than um, than the novel or the modern novel as, as we understand it. Think about some of the very early um, English language modern novels. You've got Robinson Crusoe, you've got Gulliver's Travels, and both of those books were actually mistaken for non-fiction works by some of their readers because the form was familiar the the narrative of a of a of a journey or a, an ordeal on in some far-flung place that was a familiar form so it's been around a long time and it's been around in multiple cultures i mean the the earliest example of a first person non-fiction 
travel narrative that's been identified in Europe comes from the 6th century. It was a Galician nun called Egeria who travelled to the Holy Land and wrote an account of her journey for for the people back in the back in the, the nunnery, her, her sort of sister nuns. Um, but it, by that stage, there was already a rich tradition of travel writing in the first person in China. Um, there were there were plenty of scholar monks, scholar adventurer monks who travelled within China, but but also to India and to Southeast Asia. Uh, mainly in pursuit of Buddhist knowledge, but they were also kind of functioning as as ethnographers. They were recording customs and practices and places that they saw, and and they they sometimes produced first person narratives. So it existed there. Japan has a very very long history of the travel narrative as well. So so it's existed and arisen sort of spontaneously in in I think pretty much every literate culture around the world across history. What happened in the European tradition, which is the one I've kind of mainly, mainly looked at in the book, is that once the the very early stages of, of what became empire and colonialism developed, the journey narrative became associated with that, with exploration, with voyages to the Americas, voyages to, to Asia and so on. So you ended up with these, these journey narratives attached to that. Um, out of that kind of developed the, the, the scientific journey narrative. And you know, we think of people like Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin. They produced first-person narrative books, but books that presented you know, new, new knowledge, new scientific knowledge. So that that was travel writing in the in the nineteenth century. It was this this knowledge genre, really. Um, then into the twentieth century, the serious academic stuff kind of peeled away into formal academic writing, um, became sort of institutionalized in the academy, and that left the travelogue, the first person narrative of the journey as a literary thing rather than a rather than a sort of scientific or knowledge um genre so that's where it's sort of literary characteristics developed where the idea of, of travel writing as fine writing developed um and that kind of gradually gradually emerged through the 20th century and really then hit hit the big time from the 1970s onwards with writers like bruce chatwin and paul theroux colin thubron jonathan raven um and that sort of takes us up to where we are now, really. So why write about travel writing and travel writers at all? And what was it like to yourself travel around and meet and talk to all of these authors? Well, I mean, the, the answer to the first bit from from myself would just be because it's interesting. I mean, there's 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 really, I think, no more no more intriguing genre, no more complicated genre than travel writing. I mean, when you when you talk about fiction, of course, it's fascinating, but it doesn't have that fraughtness. Uh, a novelist just sits in a room and, and writes a book. A travel writer, we assume or we hope, has been out, interacted with the world, and then somehow translated that back into a into a narrative. And that process is where the the potential the potential difficulties come in. Elements of fictionalization can come in. Where's the where's the limit? How how absolutely strictly do they have to? adhere to exactly what happened so you have all of that fascination all of those things to to dig around in you also have its its problematic um elements its historical associations with colonialism the the power dynamics involved with somebody almost invariably well invariably really of 
uh, a degree of power and privilege traveling often amongst people that have less power and less privilege and then writing about it. So there's all these fascinating things to, to, to wrangle with. So that's why I write about travel writing. It was actually a very, a very personal thing for me. I've been fascinated by travel writing since, since my teens, I've been reading it my whole life. Um, working as a travel writer of a kind, mainly on the kind of guidebook and, and journalism side, but but certainly a sort of practitioner, and then also studying it as an academic. So uh, what that produced in me was a certain unease, a certain, uh, almost a guilty conscience, uh, a sense that I'm not sure if I'm I'm really allowed to like this genre. It has so many potential problems. Is is travel writing okay? Um, is this a, is this a sort of ethically sustainable genre? So that was my personal impetus. It was a, a genuine, a genuine anxiety really about travel writing and a desire to to answer that that question: is it is it okay by traveling around and talking to the practitioners, also to people who study it, also to people who read it? So that was why I set out on the journey, and it was it was sort of genuinely transformational i did come out at the end with a very different perspective from the one i went in with um with a much more positive and relaxed um attitude towards travel writing and part of that came from all these these people i i met along the way um so they were they were they were a mix of people i'd been reading my whole life the kind of grand figures of the genre so colin thubron um, Dervla Murphy, people like William Dalrymple. I began with Philip Marsden, who's a writer I've always, always admired. Rory McLean, Sarah Wheeler. And then I, I also spoke to people who uh, were uh, travel writers who've emerged more recently. Um, some of them had been somewhat less familiar to me until I started the project. Um, people like uh, Patrick Barkham, Manisha Rajesh, Samantha Supermanian, and they ended up speaking to Katka Kasabova, who, for my money, is one of the most interesting and exciting people writing about writing about journeys um, these days. So it was just a wonderful mix of people. But generally speaking, writers, writers like talking about their own work, um, and travel writers, because of the nature of the job, are good at talking to people. Uh, their books are put together from journeys um so they're they're out and about in the world so they're very good at talking to people and they're 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 nice people to hang out with um it's great i recommend talking to travel writers so you're traveling around and you're and you're meeting you know all of these you know giants of the genre but could you maybe talk a little about who some of your most um memorable interview subjects and memorable interviews were um in writing your book (laughs) They were all memorable uh, in in very different ways, and they were also wonderfully wonderfully varied. And they were all in different places. Generally, I, I went to meet people where they lived, often in their own home or, or certainly near it. Um, so there's a great variety from the the Highlands of Scotland to to Monaco. But I think I think probably um, the the most memorable, the one that I kind of treasure as an experience, was Dervla Murphy. Um, who is well? She's in her in her late eighties. Uh, probably, probably the longest serving travel writer there is. Uh, Colin Thubron would come in probably at number two, but uh, but I think Devla Murphy's got a few years on him in terms of when she published her first book. And she's uh, she's just a wonderfully uh, eccentric character who lives in in a small town in Ireland called Lismore in a 
in a wonderfully eccentric house that's not really a house it's in a in a courtyard compound and it's a series of standalone sheds just a just a glorious a gloriously strange place and a gloriously interesting character so i think she was she was certainly one of the highlights but but they were all memorable in their different ways william Dalrymple was hilarious um robin hanbury tennyson was just wonderfully garrulous and, and fluent and lives in the most beautiful place perched on the edge of deep valley at the at the very brink of Bob Moore in Cornwall, so so they were all they were all wonderfully memorable. But I think Dervla Murphy probably is the the one I treasure the most as a memory. So I'd like to get into some of the discussions around the genre of travel writing. Um, first of all, you know, travel writing has sometimes been portrayed as an let's forget for lack of a better word, kind of an instrument of colonialism, imperialism, you know, Western power, etc. Um, obviously it's probably more complicated than that. I think the writers themselves are kind of dealing with these concepts in a lot more complicated manner. Um, but I guess, how do you see travel writing kind of interacting with these ideas of, you know, post-colonialism power and maybe how have authors tried to grapple with these ideas themselves? Yeah. I mean, that's the root of the, the scholarly critique of travel writing that has existed really since since Edward Said's Orientalism, that that this was very often um, certainly going back into the nineteenth century, written within the framework of colonialism. So somebody from the colonial power travelled to a colonial possession, travelled around it. Um, their travel was facilitated, inflected with the power dynamics of colonialism, and they then basically reiterated that uh, that circumstance in the way they they wrote the books. And then the critique of the more recent travel writing is that it often replicated that dynamic, even though the the political administrative aspects of colonialism had gone. Um, the dynamic of the typically male, uh, typically from a pretty elite background, um, writer from Britain or France or possibly from the US, then traveling through a place like India, just just rehearsed the, the colonial dynamic and brought out some colonial ideas and attitudes, even if at the surface level, the writer was progressive, notionally progressive and, and liberal and, and even anti-colonial. And I think that's a very fair criticism. And I think you can see that in a lot of the travel writing that emerged in the 80s and, and even into the 90s. But I think that within that critique, there was a slight myopia, a slight failure to differentiate the the individuals producing texts and the individual texts from the wider concept of traveling and then writing about it which is a, is a neutral thing i mean that, that that's there's no there's no particular values built into that and as i was saying earlier travel writing has been emerging all over the world um, for for centuries, for millennia. It was Chinese travel writing, Japanese travel writing, Javanese verse form travel writing. So it's 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 always existed. There's nothing intrinsically colonial about travel writing itself. And one of the people I interviewed, Samantha Supermanian, who's Indian, um, and he, you know, I asked him this question as an Indian travel writer: Do you have any? Latin problem with this this genre the tradition you're writing in and he said well look the 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 colonial travel writing 
was a symptom of the problem. It wasn't the problem itself. And I think that is the mistake that has occasionally been made, the idea that travel writing is the problem itself. And I'm very much, particularly having completed this journey of the opinion that the bad travel writing is a symptom of something. That doesn't mean travel writing itself has something wrong with it. I mean, and, and, and you noted something is this idea of whether uh, travel writing or at least old travel writing kind of always had the sense of, um, you know, people traveling from the imperial center outwards. Um, but I think probably as time goes on, it gets more complicated in that way, where, where, where it's much less there's a center and there's a periphery and people are traveling to the periphery. It's much more flat, I guess, much less hierarchical. I mean, I, I guess how, how have you seen kind of that dynamic evolving over time? I, very, very clearly, it's it's evolved, and and what I think is is quite remarkable is how very quickly that has changed in the we'll say the anglophone travel writing world. Now, as I said, there's always been travel writing produced in in very different cultures, but if you look at what was being published in English, um, just just sort of twenty 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 five years ago in the nineties it did tend to conform to a particular mold. Um, the, the bulk of the writers were, were male. Um, uh, a very large proportion of them were from sort of elite private educational backgrounds, been to places like Eton and Oxford. And even those who weren't British very often had a background that was, that was very, very close, very close to that. Um, even some of the, the the Indian travel writers of the 1980s and, and 1990s who were published in, in Britain and published in New York, people like um, Vikram Seth, came from a came from an elite educational background that wasn't so different from the the the, the Britons who were who were traveling and people from the states as well. So it really was it's elite and very male genre. And it would be easy to mistake that as being somehow intrinsic to travel writing. But what's happened in the last 20 years is that has just just sort of dissipated. Um, and you get travel writers like Samantha Supermanian, who is from an elite educational background, but has this mobile um, existence. He was born in Britain, but is Indian, grew up in India, partly in Indonesia, school in the States, lived in Ireland, now lives in the UK. People like Kapka Kasabova, who's from Bulgaria, uh, moved as uh, in her late teens to New Zealand, lived for a while in France, travelled around lots of other places, ended up living in Scotland. So you have you have people like that, and then you have people from from diasporic backgrounds. Um, so you've you've British writers like now Sarah Wiwa and Manisha Rajesh. So um, now it's her her parents were from Nigeria. She's British, but she's been able to write about Nigeria with a sort of insider outsider angle, and and then Manisha Rajesh like is writing about India. She's British. Her parents were doctors who came from India. So she she has a has an eye on India that is different from that of somebody like Colin Zubron or Dervla Murphy or, or myself. So there's suddenly this, this breadth and variety that has just emerged quickly and changed quickly. And I think you'd, you'd almost say that the, the old Etonian-style travel writers are, are becoming a bit of an endangered species. And well, that's probably not a bad thing.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So you you noticed kind of how um, most of the travel writers were, were men. Um, but you do obviously interview some female travel writers and you make some, you kind of share some thoughts at the time as maybe how female travel writers kind of went about their work differently due to the fact that they were women, they were women traveling and having to maybe uh, write in a certain style to avoid some of the immediate uh, responses that male readers might have about, you know, women traveling abroad alone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wonder if you might kind of get into that gender dynamic a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a thorny one. And it's one that, that raised lots of anxieties for me writing about how to tackle this, how to tackle this question. And it's something that academics have long been obsessed with. I mean, there's been an awful lot of scholarly work on women's travel writing, trying to, trying to, sort of see is there something fundamentally different about it and the argument was often made that the women's travel writing of the colonial period tended not quite so straightforwardly to align itself with the colonial project i think that can be overstated sometimes but there's definitely something in it um so as to the question of of how women's travel writing differs from men's travel writing um i think it's certainly true that until at least until Dervla Murphy and then running back in the generations before that, back into the 19th century, there was a particular um, particular persona <clears throat> that women travel writers tended to adopt. And it was the hardy, slightly eccentric um, figure, the, the, the tough woman in the good thick skirt striding over mountains in wherever it might be uh, and bossing people around and being unfazed by anything. And, and Dervla Murphy was the kind of late, late iteration of that. She insists that she's not brave because she's fearless. She doesn't know what fear is. That's her, that's her, her sort of spiel. Um, and I think that that persona that that downplaying risk that that um taking things in your stride aspect of of women's travel writing older women's travel writing was in a way uh, an attempt to neutralize the impropriety of women traveling in a patriarchal society the idea that a woman going off on her own was well that was transgressive in itself and also you know there was a there was a sort of sexual frisson, on a sexual danger to that because an unaccompanied woman off rampaging through wherever um 
was potentially sexually improper by the by the mores of Victorian England, for example. So I think that persona was was part of that. It was to it to suggest there's nothing dangerous about this, um, so therefore it's not inappropriate. I think from the nineties it's been very different, and women women travelers and women travel writers haven't had to adhere to that that mode and and you tend not to not to get that quite so strongly in more more recent women's travel writing in terms of the actual fundamental differences between the the way women write and men write i don't know if you can really identify anything but i think it's absolutely true that there are fundamental differences in how the world is experienced i'm a six foot tall shaven headed white guy you know there are places that i am not in any way scared or concerned to, to wander and that doesn't have to be far off traveling that can just be around home whereas if you're a woman traveling in certain places you're going to you're going to have a different interaction with the environment you're going to attract different attention from people and i think the the, the difference of the experience comes across in the books as for the actual the core tone or worldview i think it's very hard to say so what do you think is the relationship between travel writing and you know quote unquote the truth um i think all the writers you talk to i think admitted sometimes sheepishly sometimes would you know shamelessly that they would move events around to kind of fit the narrative um they may play some things up to suit a certain narrative um you also noted that you know several writers and readers you'd ask them in the abstract you know are you finding some fictionalizing or some kind of um, changing things for for the narrative, and everyone said, "Oh, of course, of course, that's fine." And then you'd give them specific examples, and suddenly they thought that was beyond the pale. Um, and so, I guess, kind of, what what are your thoughts about travel writing and and I guess travel writing and how it relates to, I guess, maybe a particular narrative or story that the writer wants to tell. It's it's an endlessly fascinating and in a way unanswerable question, this relationship between travel writing and the truth. I mean, on, on the one hand, if we if we think about journalism, if we read a, a, a journalist's account, a journalistic article, if it's a short news story, we assume that that is absolutely the truth. And if we read a long form journalistic account that might have an element of narrative, even of the first person, we also kind of assume that that this is absolutely factual. And then when you get into travel books, there's there's sometimes a kind of tacit understanding. Ah, well, of course, they've they've smoothed the narrative. They've edited things. They haven't put everything in. They might have moved things around slightly. And as as you said in the question, I, I found when I talked to readers there was very often this this yeah, very 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 sanguine approach that of course there must be there must be an element of that going on i'm i'm fine with that and then you present them with an example for example the fact that patrick lee for more in between the woods and the water wrote about riding a horse that that didn't exist he was not riding a horse um if you tell people about that then they're horrified and they're outraged so people seem to be able to to accept it in theory but not in practice and I think this is what brings this fascinating tension to travel writing, because travel writers generally know that readers do not like it if things are invented. And more than one travel writer spoke to me about the idea of a contract. There's a contractual obligation to the reader to, to relate things strictly strictly as they were. But then at the same time, there's the need to craft a compelling narrative to have those moments of tension and drama, have that rhythm that you would get in a fictional narrative. And that 
pushes the writer towards you know tweaking things um and i i think it's i think it's unanswerable and i think it's permanently there and i think it's it's one of the things that makes travel writing so so intriguing um i don't have an absolute answer to it but my my general take uh is that i prefer writers to attempt as far as possible to remain faithful to the actuality of what happened um accepting that there inevitably has to be an element of fiction creeping in. So I have one more question. Um, and and you note this, I noted this in my introduction of the episode, but also it's something you talk about at the very, very end of your book in, in the postscript. Um, obviously, with COVID, um, no one's traveled for a very long time. Um, I haven't gone traveling for coming up on a year and a half, probably not, probably won't travel for two years, I think. Um, but you note that, you know, despite our inability to travel, you actually end the book with uh, an optimistic note that the COVID pandemic might actually revive travel writing as a genre. And I wonder if you might explain why you think that. Yeah, and, and I'm not not the only person to say that. I was talking to a, a travel editor, a newspaper travel editor at the weekend, and, and she she had come to a very similar conclusion. Um, I think there's, there's a couple of different elements to it. One is that I think some of that ethical queasiness around travel writing that was there maybe 20 years ago has dissipated as it's become apparent that there are far more diverse voices producing travel writing and that there's been an active search for that. So some of that ethical queasiness about the old Etonians bestriding the world has dissipated. Um, Partly it's just a cyclical thing. Travel writing had 25 years, English language travel writing had 25 years of, of a boom from the mid-1970s to, to round about 2000, um, when it did very well. And then it fell out of fashion. And, and, and I think that was, there's lots of explanations given, given for why that happened, but I think it was in part just cyclical. So we've now had 20, 20 years or so when travel writing wasn't particularly in fashion. So it's about time for a bit of interest uh, amongst commissioning editors of the world. And I think just before the pandemic, you could see the first signs of that. 2019 was a good year for travel books. There were quite a lot of of high profile English language travel books came out from old names and from new names. So there was the glimmers of of a fresh stirring in the genre. And then sort of serendipitously, you have the pandemic. So those books that came out in 2019 tended to do rather well because people were stuck at home and the 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 turn to the vicarious journey the armchair traveling of reading a book was an obvious thing you got this flood of articles about top 10 travel books to journey the world without leaving your house during lockdown and this kind of thing um, and then that also prompted a, an interest in the older books and the vintage stuff. Um, John Murray, the publisher, has launched a new list of, of old classic travel books republished to tap into that. So I'm pretty sure that at the moment, commissioning editors will be looking much more favourably at proposals and manuscripts of journey narratives, travel books than they were two or three or four years ago. So I think I might be wrong, but I hope I'm right. I think we're probably at the brink of at least a a minor resurgence and possibly another great 25 year boom of travel writing. So on that optimistic note, um, thank you for listening to an interview with Tim Hannigan, author of The Travel Writing Tribe, Journeys in Search of a Genre. Tim, I actually have one more question for you. 
where can people find your work and what's next for you? Of course. Well, that's a very, very important question. Yes, uh, the book is is out everywhere now. Um, it is uh, available in, in all good bookshops in the UK, the US. It's available in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think it's available in Australia from early next month. Um, but it, it should it should be available everywhere from, from the usual places. And you can order it online as well. Um, you can order it directly from the publisher Hearst or from the regular online booksellers. Um, in terms of what's next, I'm in the midst of working on a travel book, but it's a slightly unusual one. I'm from Cornwall in the southwest of the UK, which is a place that has often been written about, often been travelled to. So I have done my own journey through my own home region, and I am writing about that journey, but my theme is the way it has been written by other people, the way it's been constructed, the way the idea of Cornwall as an exotic Celtic fringe uh, other land has been constructed and what that might mean to somebody like myself who actually comes from Cornwall. So that should be out in 2023. Uh, it's called provisionally called the Granite Kingdom, a Cornish journey. So I'll come back and speak to you about that when it's done. Looking forward to it. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information of who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Tim, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.